Ready to go? All right. Hey, come on back. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Somebody at Kate will get you a Bible. And uh, turn with me over uh, to the book of Colossians. Do you know this? Paul had an understudy. His name, what a great name. I mean, what a great name. His name was Timothy. My name's Timothy, for those who don't know. Okay. And Paul uh, told him something that he was to be doing and then to relay it on to the people that he was shepherding and responsible for, and that's this. Paul told Timothy to exercise himself, do you know this, towards godliness. Exercise himself towards godliness. Now, who here knows that exercise is a little bit painful? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And what happens every New Year's Day, every single New Year's Day, every single New Year's Day, you all and so do I, we say, oh my goodness, we got to exercise this year. You write it in your little journals. I write it in my little journal. We make that pledge and, you know, we head down to South Park or wherever you go and we become a weekend warrior and we overdo it and we come home and our muscles are so sore and after about two or three days of that, we hang it back up on the shelf until next January 1 for many of us, not all of us. And what's really funny about uh, exercise and fitness and all that sort of thing is most people when they get into that mode... They, they do this. They, they just break out in cardio exercise. You know that? Running, walking, um, maybe a little bit of diet, but, but, but the running and the walking, and we're going to go walking, and we're going to walk up hills, and we're going to do all that. And everybody loves cardio. And what's really funny, if you study that world, is cardio is good to a point. You, 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 you lose a little bit of weight, but then It all happens to us, doesn't it, when we're on that kind of thing? We get to a place where we just can't do any more through the cardio, and we're just, you know, we're killing ourselves out there in two and three. And and the studies show this, that after a little while, if you're trying to be fit and all that sort of thing, cardio is really not the answer. The answer is lifting weights which, by the way, I hate to do. I hate it. You talk about something that hurts. That hurts to me. But it's really interesting. Lifting weights is the hard work, and most fitness experts say if you really want to get to that place where you can get over the hump and get as fit as you can and, you know, lose the fat percentage and all that sort of thing, then you have to start lifting weights. You can't just do cardio. You know what I'm saying? And they say that now, you know, back when I was trying to do some of that stuff. You know, we'd do like curls, you know, and all that sort of thing. But those are just cosmetic things. What the the studies show is that you do a lot of compound lifts. So you do movement lifts like jerk and cleans and squats and all that sort of thing. And that actually has this effect. 
It builds muscle in you, which fights, for lack of a better way of saying it, the fat. It's better than cardio because it, is it, it isn't on the defensive, it's on the offensive. You see what I mean? Because you're actually building muscle if you can do it. And then that whole process of chemical and kinesiology, all that sort of thing that I don't understand, actually works to make you more fit than just cardio 24-7. Now, why am I going through all of that? Yeah, somebody said over here in my family, I don't know. Because Colossians is the heavy lifting of the Bible. It's not the defensive stuff like the cardio, the stuff you bust out in. Oh, man, I'm going to jump in and we're going to read through the Psalms. I love it. And the Psalms are amazing. I love them. And there's a place for it. Yes. But see, Colossians is where you're building your spiritual muscles. And sometimes, and maybe after you hear me preach, you'll really say this, Colossians is painful. And here's why it's painful, in my opinion, to the modern mind. Because every one of you have one of these, and you, we know we can, if we want to, on the way home, we can order food through the drive-thru, and we can have it in five minutes. We, we want instant gratification. We don't want to think anymore. We've gone from a society that used to be people who read and thought and discussed and thought about things, and there was a marketplace of ideas right in the home to a, 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 a society where we're all in our different rooms and we're on electronic things and we're video-oriented and all that sort of thing. And so the studies say that our lack of thinking Critical thinking is declining. In fact, in 2016, I know it's a, a four or five year old study, they did the, the SAT scores in 2016 were the lowest they've ever been since they've tracked SAT scores nationwide. I'm convinced it's because we're a nation of people who no longer think. But Colossians is the heavy lifting. And what it does, sort of, just like weightlifting, it kind of breaks down your muscles a little bit, and you got to rest and think about it. And as you do that recovery period, you'll build up stronger than before. That's Colossians. It's only a few chapters, four in fact, and you say, well, how can that be heavy? Well, it's heavy. And it's going to require you and I and we to think about some things. Colossians is set in this setting. It's a little town in Asia Minor, not Asia like Japan and China. Asia Minor is Turkey. It's a little town there. So put on your thinking caps here. You're going to have to do it for about 10 minutes, and maybe longer than that. But here's the, here's the first 10 minutes you're going to have to really think, and I'd even jot some of these things down because it's so pertinent. If you don't know the background to Colossians, it's like doing the heavy lifting with no weight on the ends, if you don't know the background. So it's a little town. It's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And if you have a Bible with maps, look at it. It's in Turkey, Asia Minor. 
And this is the fascinating thing about this letter, the letter of Colossians. The guy who wrote it, his name's Paul, had never, ever, 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 ever been there. Isn't that interesting? You see, Paul, in his different missionary travels around the Mediterranean, went to a place called Ephesus. Ephesus. You've heard of it because you know and love, like I do, the book of Ephesians, right? Ephesus. And the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 19, that the people in Ephesus, that church, was so vital and dynamic and alive that it uh, preached everywhere in all the cities in Asia Minor. So, you're going to meet a guy and his, in this book, and his name is Epaphras. Epaphras. Epaphras apparently was one of the people who was impacted by the Ephesus church coming to his city and preaching the gospel. Because Epaphras actually visited Paul, the guy who wrote Colossians, in prison in Rome. You're saying, what? This letter is one of the prison epistles. Now, listen, don't get a glazed eye. Don't, don't do the glazed look. I'll start clapping at you. Because if you don't know the background, you'll never grow. But when you know the background, oh, you're going to sail in this. And so Epaphras visited Paul in church. First, he loved Paul. Paul had created this church in Ephesian or Ephesus, and that had gone out on a mission. And it had witnessed and shared with all the cities, including Colossae. And he had gone into the prison and said some things to Paul, apparently. And how do we know this? Because he, Paul didn't write this letter in a vacuum, folks. You can see from the things that he addressed, the concerns that Epaphras had and relayed to him when he went and visited him in the prison. Everybody tracking with me? He's... This, this little town, Colossae, is part of a three-city area. These three cities in this little valley called Lycus. If you go in the back of your Bible, like I'm doing now, there's this little jutting down southern piece of Turkey called Lycia. And in this valley is this city called Colossae. And it started out as a, this, this is so important for us as a church. It started out as a kind of a prominent town with the other three cities. But, the, but by the time that Paul got to Ephesus, this city, Colossae, had declined in uh, 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 fame and commerce. So here's what I'm trying to tell you in not a very good way. Paul is writing a letter from prison in Rome, that's Italy for those who don't know, to a church in Colossae or in Asia Minor in the Lycus Valley that is really sort of insignificant to the world. And he's never been there. But he cares for them. Why does he care for them so much? Because they're part of the body of Christ. I want you to see something. 
I lived in Pleasant Hills, I'm just got to say it, folks, for 11 years. And I knew where Elizabeth was, but I had no idea there was a West Elizabeth. None. Zip. Zero. And for some people, even some of the people of the town, they may feel like this is an insignificant part of Western PA or Southwestern PA, and I'm here to tell you that the Lord cares. <laughs> I love being here. People say, well, my goodness, maybe get out on 51 or something where, yeah, okay, I see that, but man, the Lord has planted us here, and he cares for the people here and the people who come here, and he's never forgotten us. That's Colossae. That's us. And what is he writing about? Well, you got to now just, again, stay with me, or you'll never understand this letter. See, there was this mix, apparently, of weird ideas that started infiltrating, am I saying that right? Infiltrating the church at Colossae, and apparently Epaphras, when he visited Rome, was very concerned about it because it springs out of Paul's writings. And it was a, a, a weird mix of Jewish mysticism and works-based stuff that included passwords and codes to get to different levels of spirituality, and that was mixed with this thing called Gnosticism. And if you don't understand Gnosticism, your muscles will never grow. And so Paul's writing this letter to what many consider an insignificant church while he's in prison. By the way, the gospel can't be chained. And he's writing it in the context of this weird or these weird religious ideas that are infiltrating the church. And before I tell you what Gnosticism is, I just want you to know that the same old trick has been happening since the time of the Bible, Colossae, that happens now. And what happens is, is people take and diminish Christ in their theology, and it turns into something that's warped and I would say even cult-like. Because the deity of Christ is brought low or undercut in almost, or if not every single weird theology. Listen, my dad grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. They don't believe he's divine, folks. Great prophet, great man, all this sort of thing. But, but that's taking who Christ is. And, and, and so... And the backdrop against this Gnosticism, Paul writes this letter that takes our faith and tells us who Christ is really, which means he's got a, you know, a spiritual fitness goal that's way up there for us. And he's saying, if you'll take these things in and exercise towards godliness, you'll be up here in life, spiritually. Here's Gnosticism. Gnostic, by the way, the word in the Greek is kenosis. File that away. 
And these Gnostics begin with this basic assumption. Here's where you have to start with Gnosticism. Write this down, because if you don't know this, you'll never understand Colossians. If you do understand it, you're going to just be blessed. They all, the, the, the starting point was with them, everything that is matter, body, wood, you know, floor, everything that's matter, that is a part of matter, is evil. And everything that's spiritual is good. And they held this, that matter is eternal. And it's out of evil matter that the world was created. That's Gnosticism. And you know this, Christians, on the other hand, believe that God created everything out of nothing. Gnostics believe they created it out of evil, or the world was created out of evil matter. And here's the weird part. Look at this. God is spirit and not physical, they would say, and he is spirit and not physical. And they had all of these emanating angels that would come down and get closer to earth. Right? And as the angels got farther and farther away from God, they became less and less good. And so when it was time to create earth, the ones who created earth were creating, or excuse me, were hostile to God. They weren't so close to God. They were actually hostile to God, and they were creating something that was evil. And in fact, they believed Jesus was one of those emanations. Are you catching that? That's what Gnostics believed, that Jesus was an emanation that's at the bottom of the ladder and that he came to earth. And so this is sort of the premise. And what they thought was that humans were responsible then to find their way to God. And you had to be, catch this, catch this. In order to get from one level of spirituality to the next, you had to be super spiritually in tune and intellectual. And so Gnosticism became the religion, quote-unquote, of the highly intellectual people. If you didn't have smarts up here, you didn't get in. Well, we know that's not true in our family, right? I'm in, so... <laughs> So salvation meant intellectual knowledge more than it did grace. Are you seeing the difference? And so it's only for the intellectuals. And I could go on and on and on about the Gnostics. But if you don't know that, that there's many intermediaries and um, Jesus is only a partial revelation of God, because he's emanated so far away from the top angels, he's just a sliver of what God is, you'll, you'll never get Colossians. But in the backdrop of that, Paul writes this letter, sends it, or at the request of Epaphras, sends it back to Colossae, and they read it in this church, and Paul's never been there. I love that. Don't you love that? Man, the gospel can't be contained. Here's this little insignificant church in a little insignificant city that God cares immensely about. Do you feel in, insignificant? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But you're not 
God sees you and knows you and loves you and counts you. Let's get into the text. Here it comes. Paul. (laughs) I laugh about that because some people say Paul didn't write it. (laughs) It's like, come on, guys, gals. What do you, come on. All right, here we go. Paul, read with me, verse 1, chapter 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. (laughs) Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the world of truth, of the gospel, which has come to you as it was, or as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it also, I can't speak today, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, there he is, Our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, uh, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering, don't miss this, with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consists. Wow. Whew, that's a run-on, right? And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things... All things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father, verse 19, that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his Christ or of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled, wow, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Even I can figure out that Paul wrote this. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. Uh, Help us to exercise ourselves towards godliness, even when it hurts. Having to study and open up our minds and think and be critical thinkers, help us to do that uh, because we need it. And, uh, Lord, we do want to grow spiritually. Uh, But as we sang, Lord, 
We want to show the world how strong you are through us. Magnify you. May we do that this morning in Jesus' name. So, with that backdrop, here's what you have. You have Paul, an apostle, a messenger, a sent-out one. Remember, he's one who actually saw Jesus, right? He actually saw Jesus uh, as he's walking on the, uh, uh, to, to Damascus. He saw Jesus and heard from Jesus. And so he is an apostle, this Paul, in Rome, writing this an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Apparently, the Holy Spirit had spoken to him as Epaphras had come to him and asked him these questions, and he included in a gracious way Timothy, his understudy, a younger guy, our brother. And I don't think Timothy had anything to do with writing this. Many people believe maybe Timothy wrote it out as Paul dictated it maybe because some people believe Paul had problems with his eyes. Uh, But this is Paul writing this, and Who is he writing it to? Well, we've talked about that. He's writing to the people who were in Colossae, who, by the way, if you're from a different uh, persuasion uh, than us, uh, uh, you know, in your uh, time with God, you know, there aren't just some saints, folks. He's writing to an insignificant church, according to the world, in an insignificant place, according to the world, to insignificant people. They're not insignificant to God, and he calls them saints. They didn't do any miracles, maybe. Maybe some of them did. I don't know. But here's the real miracle, is that Christ is living in their hearts, and that makes them a saint. And they're faithful brethren. Isn't that beautiful? You imagine the things. Don't you want to be an Epaphras? I so need this, man. I so need this. Don't you want to be an Epaphras? He goes up to Paul, and he just tells of the glories of the things that God is doing through the people in the church. And Paul writes back and says, wow, you saints, I hear how faithful you are. You see, success in the Christian life is not whether you fill up 100,000 people in a stadium and pray to them or preach to them and, you know, or, or, you know, you start some ministry and it just blooms and blossoms and it's massive. No, success, Jesus tells us, is just to be faithful. Whatever God has called you to, and I don't know, I don't know what God's called you to. Maybe he's called you to a prayer ministry. He just says, you know what, every morning in your room, I just do this intercessory prayer for these people. Hey, pray for me. I need it, so if that's your ministry. And, 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 And what God is saying to you and seeing through you is whether or not you're faithful at it. If you'll just be faithful in the little things, he says, maybe we'll increase. But don't worry about that. Just be faithful. Is it cleaning the toilets back here or maining the bookstore or playing an instrument or greeting people or, or whatever it is? Get involved and serve and then don't be wishy-washy about it. Not because you're going to hurt my feelings or anything, but the Lord is evaluating in a good way. He's saying, I want you just to be faithful in what I've called you to. And here, Epaphras says it to Paul, their faithful man. Don't you want to be an Epaphras? And he just says it. They're so faithful, Paul. And don't miss this. Do, Do not miss this. This is the astounding part of what Paul writes and what is true of you if you've, your, your life is 
you know, devoted to Christ. It's this. These saints and faithful brethren were and are, I could say it now, are in Christ. The Bible tells us that when we become a Christian, look at this, our life is hidden in his and the life that we formerly lived according to the flesh, we've put that away, and he lives his life in and through us. So there's this really mysterious, intimate thing that's going on with the Christian, and you should know it if it's you. It's that your life is hidden in Christ, and all that he is gets uh, imputed and available to you. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. He's in you, and you're in him. It's an intimate, beautiful, wonderful relationship You're in Christ, and these people were in Christ. Uh, Don't blow by it. When you read Colossians, you say, wow. Here he is right at the beginning, just right here in the greeting. He's striking at the very heart of Gnosticism because Gnosticism says you had to attain a certain level of intellectualism to get to God. Christianity says just, Hide yourself or be hidden in Christ. It's all about grace. You see it? (laughs) I told you this. One day I was downtown and there's this guy just screaming the gospel out there. And I'm walking down the street and he's on the street corner and he's screaming the gospel. And uh, I mean, you know, I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you, he was pretty aggressive right? And I could see him eyeing me from about here to the sound booth, and I knew something was coming for me. And he did. Brother, you know something, and it's loud. I mean, are you going to heaven? Do you know where you're going when you die? And I just said to him with a nice smile and a wink, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And he gave me a high five, and off I went, and, uh, you know, he didn't scream at me anymore. But it's so true, right? We're in him and he's in us. My life is hidden in Christ. That's who you are. Your identity, teach this to your kids. Don't teach your kids self-esteem BS. Don't make their identity how great they are because the problem is their hearts are deceptively wicked. Who could know it? The soul that sins shall surely die. Don't teach that. Teach their identity. They're in Christ. They're a child of the king. That takes all the pressure off for me as a kid. I'm going to get emails about the self-esteem stuff, but (laughs) I'm not trying to make fun. I know when people say self-esteem, what they're saying is they want a great image of who they are. Yes, you do want a great image of who you are, but who you are or is (laughs) is that you're hidden in Christ, and now you have purpose and life and dynamic and power and resource to go meet that life. And I know every single day when I go off to school or I go off to work what my purpose is. And the purpose is to make the life of Christ in me big. It doesn't matter where I go. Harvard, I couldn't go there probably. Or, you know, my work or I'm at a soccer game or I'm here or I'm there or I'm in Home Depot. It's all the same. Make Christ big. It takes all the pressure off. You're in Christ, and so am I. And so were the Colossians. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the letter he writes. And I know that you've heard this a million times. It's often been said you can't have peace 
unless you know grace. And I think it's so true. Unless you know the grace of God, you never have peace with God, nor could you ever have the supernatural peace that God provides. But the real tragedy of American life is everybody's pursuing peace. I just want peace. I just want to be happy. I just want, and they're doing it without grace. And so they're frustrated. People are frustrated. They're banging their heads against the wall and they're depressed and anxious. And they're like, why can't I find any peace? It's because they never know the grace of God. And that's, I'm saying it, sad with a heavy heart, you'll never know real peace until you've been gripped by the grace of God. And what is the grace of God? It's love in action. It's God saying, oh my goodness, he didn't say it that way, I said it. God, there's this problem. (laughs) They've been separated from me and they can't make their way back to me, so I'll take the medicine, so to speak, God says. And the medicine is they have to pay for their sins. They're sinful people. But I'll send my own son. That's all grace. He reaches down. You see, that strikes at the heart of Gnosticism because Gnosticism is trying to climb those rungs or rings of whatever, rungs of the ladder up to heaven Grace is God reaching down for man and bringing them up by the power of his blood. Isn't that beautiful? Takes all the pressure off. So here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his greeting and his salutation. Now watch this. Paul says, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. If you're going to be faithful in any sort of ministry, any sort of ministry, if you're going to be faithful as a mom, boy, is that a ministry, as a dad, as a friend, as a grandpa, as a cousin, as an aunt, as an uncle, whatever, I don't know, at your work, whatever, if you're going to be faithful, watch this, if you're going to be faithful in any of that, you're a person that has to cover whatever the Lord's assigned to you in prayer. If you're too busy that you can't pray for it, then how could God keep assigning it to you? Whatever it is. He's saying here, Paul, the the busiest guy in the world at the time, (laughs) spiritually, he started all these churches, he oversees all these churches. I'm a thankful person. We're all thankful. Don't miss that. We're to be thankful people. And we're praying always for you. And here's what we heard about you. Here's what we heard about these are the marks of a great church. Watch this. This little insignificant place that's declined in the eyes of the world but was still great in the eyes of the Lord. Here's what. There was faith in Christ Jesus. You say, well, okay, that's really, uh, I mean, okay, right. But as a church, as a body, each individual person has faith in Christ, and then the local church as a body has faith in Christ. That's a commitment. It's actually a word that means lean your entire weight on somebody. Anybody ever done a trust fall? Yeah, I did, and somebody punched me in the nose and I 
cut my nose real bad. But anyway, I'll never trust them again. <laughs> no. You ever done the trust fall, right? And you fall back and the people catch you? That's the idea here, is you're leaning everything. Your whole life is based on Christ. So, so here, look, look at this. Are we a church? Was Colossae was a church that when they gathered together and they showed up, they expected and believed that God was going to do things and work and send them places and share the gospel, and it was living and active and dynamic. It wasn't just something you opened up some dusty Bible, paid a few bucks, and went home. And you loved people, and you cared for people, and you, you helped people, and you ministered to the people in the congregation. They all had faith. They trusted that the Lord was going to do it and work and grow. You see that? That's what Colossae was like, and I pray that's what we're like. And then he says, and I see your love for all the saints. You go, yeah, of course, that's right. Yeah, sure. Have somebody eat one of your donuts downstairs. Have somebody sit in your pew area, and then you go, hey, what is it? What are they doing? And then fights happen in the church, or you didn't get picked for a committee. Thank God we don't have any committees here. Or, or you know, uh, you know, the the, the in some churches, you know, you get the, re, you know, the, the, the fundameter, and they send it to you halfway through the year, and it's, you know, you're not measuring up to how much money you should be giving. And then you get mad at them, and they get mad at you, and then the next thing you know, dividing and explosion and all this weird stuff. See, in the church, John, the apostle of love, told us, if you ain't loving your brother or sister, you're a big liar, you don't love God, you're just faking and posing, and you don't really love other people. You just love the people who love you. Here he says, we heard of your faith and your love for all the saints, and that, that's beautiful. Colossae. See, here's what's interesting. People can come here and learn and grow, and they can be the least intellectual person in the whole world, or the greatest intellectual person, they're all even in Jesus Christ, and we all love them. They can come from this side of the tracks, or that side of the tracks, or wherever, and we, we just sit down and have a meal. It doesn't matter. We love you, and you love us, and we're, we're so... And, and then the Bible says that's just a starting point. Jesus builds on it and says, I want you to go out, and the people who hate you, in the wrong, according to you, political party, and I want you to love them, sincerely love them, even if they revile you and say you're just weird and out of sorts for believing that resurrection stuff, I want you to keep loving them. And see, you and I, we need supernatural love there. Because who wants to do that in their flesh? Nobody. But that's the mark of a church. We love everybody. We don't care about donuts or sitting in a pew, committees. We don't care who serves, just that we're all doing it and sharing the love of Christ. The last thing, look at this, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, hope in the Bible, you know this, right? Remember this. I had one guy one time say, oh, man, I'm glad you cleared that up as we talked about this because I was wondering about that. This isn't hope like, oh, my gosh, I hope I get to heaven. No, this is the settled assurance that you are going to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our heavenly hope. Isn't that wonderful? Now, look, Paul wrote somewhere else. You all know it. In the famous love chapters in Corinthians, he said, oh, man, I love to have spiritual gifts, he said, and I love for my people to have spiritual gifts. It's just so beautiful and edifying and people grow. But look, if they have spiritual gifts, but they don't have some of these things, they're just like 
clanging cymbals that no one's ever going to be listening to. So they could do everything. They could teach, they could preach, they could speak in tongues, they could, you know, do prophecy or whatever they're going to do. But there's these three things that are really important, Paul says, and I'm, obviously I'm paraphrasing. He says, there's faith, there's hope, and there's love. And that's the stuff that makes a healthy church. And I want you, he says, to have the greatest of all of them, love for people. When you die and they stick something on that cold, dead tombstone, you'll be in heaven, so you won't care. But what do you want to have them put on there? You know, I had all my doctrine in a row. And I do want to have great doctrine, don't you? I had all my doctrine. I could do all the things. I could lead you through all the points of Calvinism versus Arminianism. I could debate you on that. I could tell you about faith and regeneration and, do, and were gifts for today or not for today. And my eschatology, oh, man, if you ask me, it was right on. And you're just, that's what everybody, no, 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 no. What the Lord wants up there is he or she loved people. And then maybe it says, really love them. That's it. Nobody here or out and about is going to listen or pay attention. Of course, the Lord can do anything unless they know you love them and are sincere. Take time to shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye. Don't look the other way and go to the next person and tell them they are loved and how could you pray for them and that you love them. Love people, and he says, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And it's a theme here, right here, not to the Corinthian church, but also to the Colossian, or the church at Colossae, right? Because of the hope which is laid up for you, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. I want you to see how glorious the gospel is. You can plant it in a person in Rome, I know this didn't happen, but you can plant it in a person in Rome, or you can plant it in a person in Damascus, Paul, and he can live several other years, and he can keep scattering seeds of the gospel, and then all of a sudden, 20 years later, boom, it can pop up in a little place in the middle of the Lycus Valley that's insignificant to the world, but dynamic in the gospel. Are you catching that? So you can plant it anywhere, and it grows, and it's dynamic. He's heard before or they heard before the word of the truth of the gospel, it came to you, which tells us we got to take the gospel out of here. Come on, folks. We don't have a great big sanctuary. Who cares? I don't care. But you know what we do have? A great big God. And if he plants his word by his Holy Spirit in your life, you can take it places. You don't have to just sit in here and just preach to each other. We've heard it all our lives. No, go out there and do it, and that's what I want to do too. It's dynamic out there. So you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, it was brought to them, as it has also in all the world. It's spreading like wildfire. What does the gospel do? It brings forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, which also declared to us your love in the Spirit. I just want you to see something. Paul knew how to speak the Colossae love language. He's got some things he's got to deal with with them. But he doesn't just, you know, take out the, the paddle 
and say, okay, starting in the first line and just, boom, just, you know, beating them over the head of the Bible or whatever. You just see what he did? He just told them how beautiful and lovely and the good things that are going on in the church. He told them that. And then he kind of segues here, and he says, For this reason, in verse 9, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now, isn't this beautiful? This is one of several places where you get a glimpse in to what Paul's praying in his prayer closet. Or he's praying with his friends and uh, disciples around. What is Paul praying for people? How does Paul pray? Lord, uh, I hope she gets the Lexus instead of the uh, Lincoln. Lord, I hope I get the bonus this week. Lord, you know how I need people to talk to me in an encouraging tone and not an encouraging tone. And if I get to church and they speak encouraging, I'll know it's a sign from you. I'm just mimicking some of the prayers that we say sometimes. Look at his prayer, man. Here's his prayer. Well, what am I praying for people? Yeah, I guess they need some uh, material things, and we could do that later, but we don't cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled, which is controlled by. Look at this. You want to know how to pray for your friends in school? You want to know how to pray for the kids from Narrow Way that came and now are down off the mountaintop, and they have to live the gospel out in a life that you know, two weeks ago was just so wonderful and utopic, utopia-like, and now they're down and, they, you know, it's summer and there's nobody. Do you want to know how to pray for them? Here it is, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Oh, my prayers are so elementary and kindergarten-like. Oh, Lord, that one guy talked mean to me. Help me not be around him so much. Oh, Lord, I didn't, you know, my boss talked to me today and not her, or, yeah, I just need some, come on, here, these are amazing faith-filled prayers that are massive and big, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, see, you don't know Greek, and neither do I, but I can look it up. And what he's saying right here is the word for wisdom is the elementary first principles, He wants you to be filled up with the building blocks of Christianity, of the life of Christ. He wants, there's my plug for the foundations of the faith to carry. Come to the foundations of the faith and get built up in the first principles, the elementary things. That's what he's saying right here. I want you to know those first principles and then in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What he's saying there is, I want you to learn the building blocks of the Christian faith. Then when you go out into life and you don't know the answer to something, you'll be able to take the spiritual principles and apply it to life. That's what he's saying right there. That's why I argue you got to put down the electronics, folks, because we're becoming a group of people who can't think. All we want is the pastor to tell us the answer. Can I do this or can I not do this? Can I go there or can I not go there? I'm happy to keep telling it to you, but the problem is the Lord wants you to grow in wisdom and spiritual understanding, to be able to apply first principles to situations in life that aren't explicitly covered in the Bible. Get it? And that's what he prays for, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing him. See, God's perfect and pleasing will always comes out in the life of a person who's been gripped by grace in right conduct. Nobody wants to hear that anymore. We just want to say a prayer on the back of the magazine, get our fire insurance, and then live like hell the rest of our lives. And that if we say something to somebody and it you know, hurts their feelings, too bad. Who are they to get in my way? And these are Christian people speaking like this. No, the Bible says that if you walk according to first principles and you apply those first principles in the will of the Lord, by the grace of the Lord, that your life will take on a certain conduct. It'll be fully pleasing to him with fruit growing from everywhere. In every good work, you'll keep doing it unto the Lord and it'll just be exploding out of your life and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, that's a mouthful. And you know what's funny about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't come up after. I'm okay. Yeah, use the back of the magazine. That's how I got saved. I got saved through the four spiritual laws. And I know people criticize the four spiritual laws, but I got saved through it from uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. So I'm okay with that. But what the problem is, is we're trying to give people nowadays easy believism, (laughs) Just like, man, a notch on my belt. Another person said the prayer when I prayed with them. Boom, put them on my notch. When reality is what we want or what the Lord wants as you come in and start learning and growing the things of the Lord that your life would be fruitful, which means you're going to turn from things that are evil or idols. And you're going to walk in a, in a manner that's fruitful or that's worthy of the Lord and God will bless that and things will be fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might. You do, I need to pray for you and you need to pray for me that we would walk in this way as we're able to apply things to life and that God would do these things by his power. Are you catching that? Don't rely upon your own self-strength or self-sufficiency. It's the enemy of God's plan. He's saying, no, when you're weak, I can be strong. You're a vessel that's been broken. Well, great, you're in the perfect position to glorify the Lord, he says, because you're teachable and and you can be molded into his image. Here, you're increasing in the knowledge of God. You're starting to understand the things of God, and you can explain it to others. And then in 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, and here it comes. You ready for this? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He says, here's what your work is now as I'm going to pray for you. Here's here's what your work is. Uh, Wherever you go tomorrow or today, here's what your work is. I'm I'm building you up uh, according uh, to this prayer. This prayer, God works this way. And and one of the things that he wants to build you up in, this is amazing, is patience. Patience. Well, that's a word called hupomone. And that word means this, victorious Christian living. Hold on. You all like that sentence no matter the circumstance. That you can bear all things in the middle of uh, any circumstance. Now listen, any circumstance. 
And in the middle of it, it's not just a, it, it, this, this word is not a, um, uh, a passive word that you just bear everything that's bad. That's not what this word is. It's that you can bear all things, and in the middle of bearing it, you're glorifying the Lord. In every single circumstance, that's hupomone. But he's also praying not only for patience, but look at this. Here, you're not going to like this. Long-suffering. That word means not bearing with all circumstances. That word means bearing with all people. Republicans, Democrats, Fox watchers, CNN watchers, MSNBC watchers, all of them, he calls on the Christians to love. I know, that's grading some of us. People who are frustrating, you know the ones that you've taught them, you know, over and over and over and over, this principle of the Lord, and, you know, it's Monday again, and they're calling you with the text, and it's the same thing. He says, I want you to love them. And be patient with him. That's what Paul's praying for, for a church. That's what makes a healthy church in an insignificant place. It's when you are patient with people. Lord, help me. That's what that means. So he's saying, I'm praying for you that in your power, you'll have patience with circumstance and long-suffering with people and that you'll be overcomers in this. And then he just tags on something that we kind of blow by, but, but don't blow by it. And he's saying, in all of those different places, I want joy to be exuding out of your life. In a circumstance that's terrible and awful, joy. With a person who drives you nuts, joy. Irritating people, joy. Not just tolerate people, but to love them with joy. Joy, joy. There's only one way that you get real joy, I'm convinced. The word is rejoice. You're to rejoice always. It means going back over again, rejoicing what Christ has done for you. It's tagged with grace. It's linked to grace. I don't know about you, but can you imagine and think about, and I do imagine or remember and think about the things that I've done and do in my life and that God has saved me from that? Whew. That's cause for joy, folks. Rejoice. He says, do this with joy. And then he says, give thanks to the Father. <laughs> if there's nothing you could ever give thanks for, you could give thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Don't you hate it when you go for a job interview and it's like the perfect job you'd want? I mean, it's perfect. It's got this, it's got that. It gives you the freedom from work from home, and you love it, and you're just, man, I'd love to do that. The problem is, when I look at my resume, I'm not even qualified to do it. <laughs> so if I submit this resume, I ain't getting the job, and you know it. And it's a real downer, isn't it? You're like, well, if I went to school, back to school for four years, and did that, maybe I could get that. And then you're like, oh, and then it's overwhelming, right? Watch this. It's not you who qualifies yourself for heaven. In the blink of an eye, 
as you give your life to Jesus Christ and you fully trust him with all your weight of your whole life, spiritually and life, and all, look at this, in the blink of an eye, he takes a resume that's just crappy. And you're qualified for heaven by the blood of Christ. It's a, it's a sinful, dark, missing the mark, inadequate resume spiritually. And because of the blood of Christ stamped on there, boom, you're welcome in heaven. You're a partaker, or you're one who is qualified to be the partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now, you're not getting it here because you're not thinking Gnosticism. But this was a mix of Jewish thought and weird emanations and matter was evil. And see, one of the things that they thought is you had to qualify yourself. And here Paul is saying, he just, it, this is like the blowing out of the water statement. It's him, it's the Father who qualifies you to be persons who can walk in the light. You could be saints in the light. He has delivered us. What has he done? From the power of darkness and just shoo, conveys us into the kingdom of his son, but not just his son, of his love. Man, does the Lord love you. He sent his son in love to die, in whom we have redemption. We sang about it today. We've been freed from the slavery of sin through what? The blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's really wild. We come to Christ, we count on his finished work and his resurrection, finished work at the cross and his resurrection. You get bought back, you get redeemed, put back in the game for life of which you were always intended to walk. You're free now. Formerly you weren't free. You were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. You, life is the trajectory of your life is aimed towards God, no longer aimed away from God, and you have been redeemed through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. You've been bought back. I can't say it enough. You're doing what God intended for you always to do, to walk with him and to talk with him and to be called his own. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. See, because the Gnostics said there was, Jesus was one of these many emanations. Are you getting that? So he's one of these, or one of the many emanations, but this word, icon, E-I-K-O-N, image, it's where we get our word icon. <laughs> it's the image, isn't that funny? In the world, an icon has an image. Paul used icon here. Now, I want you to think about something. In the wisdom literature, Proverbs, chapters 2 through 8, it seems to indicate that wisdom was all around from the beginning of the earth. I mean, in other words, beginning of creation. In other words, before there was creation, there was wisdom. And that wisdom created the earth. And actually, in some extra-biblical writings of the Jews, they use the word icon for that wisdom. Are you tracking with me? Greeks, how about this one? Greeks use this word 
to talk about wisdom and logos. And there's some writings from Philo, a Greek philosopher, who used this word icon to describe what the logos was. By the way, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's John 1. It's the word logos there. The Greeks thought about this perfect ideal, and where did the earth come through, came from? Well, it came through this perfection, the logos. Now, just hold on with me. Just stay with me. This verse, he's the image of the invisible God, evokes something else. That we were made, man and woman, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in what? We were made in the image and likeness of God, right? Everybody tracking with me? See, what are you saying? (laughs) Well, here with one little peewee little sentence, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul takes the sledgehammer to any other way to the Father except through the Son. And he tells you what you were always meant to be. What do I mean? Well, look, icon was used by the Jews. Jesus says to the Jews, and there was a large bunch of Jewish people in Colossae, he's saying, he's the icon that was always spoken about. He's the wisdom you're looking for. To the Greeks or the Gentiles, he's saying, you know the logos that you always debate about, the perfect ideal, the perfect idea, the perfect wisdom, the one that created Christ is the icon to the Greeks. And so whether you're Jew or Greek or whatever, he's the perfect image of the goodness of God. He is God. See, a Gnostic wouldn't say that. They would say, well, Jesus was on earth, so he was closer to the earth than he was to heaven. He was an emanation that was down here, and his, he couldn't have been that. He, you had to work your way up through a number of different angels. Paul says, oh my goodness, you guys are missing it. He is the icon that you've always looked for. In other words, what Paul's saying is, and this is what cults always do, be careful. There's one program and one plan of salvation, and you don't need anything else other than Jesus Christ himself. And when people come and say, yes, it's Jesus, but you got a problem. And there's people that are going to come and knock on your door, and they do knock on your door. And they're going to say, yeah, Jesus is great. We respect him. He was a great prophet. He was the son of God. But they pour a different meaning into who he was than who Paul teached or taught about. Teached. Is that good English? This is incredible. What he's saying is, is that Jesus is the one you've always been looking for. He's God on earth. He's the firstborn over all creation. Don't get freaked out about that. Come on, folks. There's people that are going to knock on your door and say, see, he was born. He was born. He's firstborn of all creation, says it right there in the Bible. Well, you're not reading the Bible 
my friend, because the rest of this chapter talks about how he created everything, this same one, so he's always been eternal. But even more than that, the Bible always, always in the Old Testament, did you ever wonder in the Old Testament why an older brother and a younger brother would get in a hassle and then the older brother would be called the firstborn. You're saying, well, what do you mean? Don't you remember Ephraim and Manasseh? Manasseh was the older, but in Jeremiah 31, God said, I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So firstborn doesn't mean the one who came out of the womb first, or in this case, was even born. He was born through, but, but, but you're getting it. It's firstborn means not chronology, but quality. He's the one who should be honored above all. In other words, he's shattering Gnosticism. He's shattering Mormonism. He's shattering Jehovah Witnessism. Say, well, okay. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth. You see that Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. And that are on earth, visible and visible. He created everything on earth and everything in the heavens, everything that's even invisible and invisible, like angels. All things were created through him, and then I don't want you to miss it, and I'll stop. Some of you are like, yes, stop. He's the agent of creation. Watch this. If you don't remember anything else from today, remember this. Jesus is the one from which all things were created, but he's also the end goal of why we were created, because we were created for him. So when you say that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, he's from the beginning and he's from the end. The goal of your life, here it is, I know it, the whole goal of your life. This is it. This is it. Is you were made for him. You see, you were made for him. I always say this, you're probably tired of it, but see, here in America, we act like he was made for us. Lord, here's my agenda for today. You know, I've always wanted that back patio porch, and I can't get a contractor, and I need you to get me a contractor, and I need it by noon. Is that good? And quite frankly, I haven't really saved for it, but I still want it. So send me the money to have the porch. I mean, that's, that's what we do, folks. It's like, here's my agenda. You be my butler. When the Bible says, he's the captain of our salvation, all we do in the morning is we report to work. Yes, sir. Whatever you have me to do today, wherever you have me to go, Lord, may it be for your glory. I live for you. You don't live for me, Lord. I know it because you tell me in your scriptures. Okay, listen, I'll stop here. But I want you to see something here before you leave. Paul writes later in Romans chapter 12 that the way in which you're going to be transformed, folks, is when your mind gets renewed. And what Paul is praying for here, and he wants us to have here, 
is a right and correct and high and glorious and accurate, accurate view of who Christ is. And everybody wants to attack Christ. They want to bring him down low. Paul wants to put, it, put him back where he belongs because, look at this, in verse 18, and we'll come back to this next week, in all things in your life and my life, Christ is to have the preeminence. What's that mean? I always wondered, what's that mean? It means to hold first place. You go, yeah, okay, cool. I come to church on Sunday. I mean, come on, it's the first day of the week. It's the first thing I do on Sunday mornings. I come to church. But he means on Mondays and even on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday and a Thursday and a Friday and a Saturday, listen, in your family, in your business, in your finances, in your sex life, in uh, your romance, in your hobbies, in all the things that you do, does he hold first place? In your conversations, is Christ preeminent? The Bible says, Paul tells us that he holds first place. And by the way, folks, Christ is the only one who has earned that right. So here, I'm going to pray. I think, are you going to do another worship song? Okay. They're going to do another worship song. We're going to end on that. If you've never given your life to the Lord and you want to do that, I want you to come up after. If you've given your life to the Lord, you're counting on his finished work, but you know, you're just in a place of confusion, come up and we'll pray. I don't want you to leave here. I don't want to leave here myself without us doing business with the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this exhortation to exercise towards godliness that you gave to Timothy but also applies to us. Lord, Colossians in many ways is heavy lifting. But Lord, you want us to go there and to be there and to grow spiritually. Lord, I'm thankful that we can come in our helplessness and just say, Lord, here's this area I need help with. Come, just come into this in my life and repair and build up. Would you please, Lord? And may you in all of our lives be glorified and may we not steal or threaten your glory in any way because you're the one who deserves all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name.